I'll tell you what, this morning, can we get a little crowd participation? Last, last year, last year, our amens were horn honks and light flashes. And let me explain to you why. Last year, last year at this time, we're sitting around with our church staff. COVID had just had just come in and everybody didn't know what the mystery was gonna be. You know, what's it gonna be? What's COVID actually gonna do? And it really, really took our church world by storm, transformed really transformed the way we did church. And for a long season, we were doing church via Facebook Live, and a lot of churches went to Zoom and all kinds of different things. And we were sitting around as our church staff the week before Easter going, but we want to get people together because people had been several weeks apart. And we're sitting there brainstorming, and we're going, where can we have church together in kind of a drive through setting? Our parking lot at our church wasn't big enough. Uh, our church was surging. We had n- not coronavirus, but it was actually growing as a church. People were coming and and we were full on the inside. We were already having parking issues where people were parking down the road. We were parking up at a factory above our, our church building. And so somebody had the brilliant idea. We were, we were looking for a, a parking lot in Lexington that was large enough to, ho- to host our church in two services. And somebody had the brilliant idea to celebrate the resurrection of Christ in the parking lot of Snyder, Snyder Funeral Home. So we... <laughs> So we ended up last year celebrating the resurrection of Jesus in a funeral home parking lot. Where's the irony in that? And we didn't, uh, we didn't get to get out of our cars and all that stuff. So when pastor was preaching good, everybody was honking their horns and flashing their lights. We're not going to do that today. We're going to say things like, amen. So let's practice. Everybody say, one, two, three, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to practice some crowd participation today. I am so grateful to be in a church building on Easter Sunday to celebrate our Lord. I'm so grateful to see your faces. I'm so grateful to shake your hands. I'm so grateful to hug your neck. I'm so grateful we're not at a funeral home. Amen? All right. Amen. So we are glad to be with you this morning. And I got to say this, that over the last two weeks, we've done a, a series called The Truth on Trial. And that series has been absolutely foundational to who we are as a church. We're a brand new church. We are a brand new place, and we're, we're trying to establish basic fundamental truths in the, in the body of Christ in this area, and we're believing that God is going to continue to bring new people, people that, that need to hear the truth of, of who Jesus is. And so we started right around Easter time, and, and in our first week, we talked about the fact that Jesus was telling the truth. Do you realize, and I, and I hope you do, even if you have walked with Jesus for a long time, if Jesus wasn't telling the truth and everything that he said ever wasn't worth listening to, the fact that Jesus was telling the truth, and not only did he say he was telling the truth, not only did he say things like, I tell you the truth, he said, I am the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus wasn't only telling the truth, he was the definition of truth itself. And so in the first week of our series, we talked about the fact that when Jesus went on trial, it really was the truth of who God is and what he wants to be in our life on trial. And that thing is still on trial in our life right now. Amen? Amen. That truth is still on trial because people really wrestle with who God is. And does God really want to have a relationship with me? Some people even wrestle with whether or not God is real at all. And you know what? That's okay. You're in a good place. I, I, I'm willing. Jesus met Thomas in his unbelief, did he not? 
the church is not threatened on whether or not you believe and whether or not you ascribe to the things of the faith. Jesus isn't threatened by that. Jesus is totally willing to walk with you as you go on a faith journey with him, and he's willing to reveal himself. And so we're not even threatened by if you show up here and you're not even sure what you believe. We're really not. But Jesus is. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so we talked about the truth being on trial. And then in week two, we talked about the cross. Because without the cross, we're nothing. You know what? If we're following Jesus and we've forgotten that we're here because of the cross, we really lost sight of the main hinchpin of our faith. Amen? amen. All right. We got to stay awake. My amens are waning. The cross is the hinchpin of our faith. Amen? amen? It really is. We have nothing without the cross. Jesus did something for us. I said it as I was closing in prayer today, that Jesus paid a debt he did not owe, and we had a debt we could not pay. What do I mean by that? God established it from the very beginning that all sin, all failure, all missing of the mark was punishable by death. And that punishment by death was going to be paid either in our lives or in a sacrificial way. And so he establishes a sacrificial system where, where our guilt and our shame can be placed upon something else. And for a season, we're made right with God. Then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, I want to finish a work for you. And he finishes the work on the cross so that, man, when we pray to be forgiven, it's done. It's done and done and done. How many people in here are grateful that when you mess up and when you fall short, all you got to do is hit your knee and say, God, forgive me, and you know that Jesus does that? Over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but I need him every single day. I, I, I need him all the time. My wife would give, give me a hearty amen if, if, if I said, man, I screw up every day. She'd be like, amen. She'd get, she'd get Pentecostal in here if she was in here. I screw up every day, every single day. I fall short of his glory every single day, but every single day I have the opportunity to fall on my knees in the king of the universe, man. The God who hung all the stars in the sky, the God that's bigger than me that created everything, he hears me, and he's willing to forgive me, and he's willing to provide a way for me to have right standing with him, and it's through Jesus, through that work on the cross. But you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll get into this by the end, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul essentially asserts that everything that we did, everything that we preach would be worthless if Jesus had not walked out of that tomb. If Jesus hadn't walked out of that tomb, everything that we preach and all the truths that we hold dear, none of those things would have anything to hold weight and hold water. And so this morning, I want to talk about the empty tomb. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, tomb. tomb. Make room in the tomb. No, I'm <laughs> Come on, we can do better. Say tomb. tomb. And we're really talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not in the habit of seeing people physically raised from the dead. I've not seen it happen too often. I, Reverend L might have seen it. I, but but, but G, Reverend L's from Africa. He sees some incredible people are woeing, man. I, I know his story. Uh, history, man. It has context. But I will tell you this. We are going to resurrect from the dead, and the reason we're going to resurrect from the dead is because Jesus resurrected from the dead. In fact, the Bible has four different gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really your first four books of the New Testament, and they're written by followers of Jesus from the perspective that they had as they followed Jesus. So obviously, Matthew's perspective is written from whose perspective? Matthew. 
Okay, okay. you'll get it by the end. Mark's perspective is written by whose perspective? Mark. Luke's perspective is written by Luke. Luke. Okay, you're, you're following a trend. And John's perspective is written by John. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have a lot of different stories. They were with Jesus at different times. There were times where Jesus would be with all 12 of them. There were times where Jesus would be with just three of them. And sometimes there would be times where Jesus was just with John because John was the beloved. And so you see some things happen in some writing in John that doesn't appear in, in the other gospels. You see some things happen in Luke and Mark that don't appear in the other gospels. But all four gospels, all four of them agree that Jesus Christ died on a cross. All four of them agree that Jesus Christ gave up his life as a ransom for us. And then all four gospels record this, that on the third and appointed day, that even though Friday, which we call Good Friday, had happened and Jesus was crucified on the cross and darkness thought it had won and the devil thought he had the final say, all four gospels record that on that third and appointed day, a stone over a tomb, a borrowed tomb, was rolled away and Jesus walked out not only, not only alive, but he walked out in power and he walked out in glory. Amen? So all four gospels record the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead and the empty tomb really does have two segments. It's two segments of the same story. The resurrection and the tomb being empty in the story, it's all part of one story, but it's two different segments. Everybody, I will say this, everybody, and I mean everybody in the Bible agreed that the tomb was empty. There was no disagreement that the tomb was empty. And you have to understand, this, this book contains words from the critics of Christ right in it. Who would write a book about themselves and contain the writings and, and the workings of the critics? Okay, so this book talks about the critics, the Sanhedrin and, and the Pharisees and the Roman guard. All of them agreed on this one concept, that we don't know why the tomb is empty, but we do agree the tomb is empty. There's nobody there anymore. Now, now, some people would say the tomb is empty because he resurrected from the dead, but there would be his critics that would say, no, the tomb is empty because something else, something far more nefarious happened, but we all agree that the tomb is empty. So there's no reason and no point today to, to, to argue the historical accuracy that the tomb of Jesus was in fact, and still is in fact, what's the word? Empty. empty. Okay. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get an empty? Okay, all right, we're just tracking, okay. So we agree that the tomb is empty, but immediately, as soon as it was over, as soon as they found that the tomb was empty, doubt started to creep in. And I just want to share this with you as, as somebody that's been following Jesus now for, for almost, uh, oh my goodness, about 25 years. I, I, I've, been, I've been a pastor for 20 years, but for about 25 years, I've been walking with the Lord. I can tell you this, doubt is something that will creep into your life repetitiously. And, and, and over and over and over, you're going to doubt what you saw. You're going to doubt what you've said. You're going to doubt what you've believed because that's the way the, the, the enemy, there is an enemy to our soul. That's the way that he wants to work in our life. He wants to cause us to doubt. And I want to tell you, if you doubt and you wrestle with doubt, sometimes you're in good company. There were disciples of Jesus who wrestled with doubt and struggled with doubt and struggled with fear.
There are people that were in the first century church that wrestled with doubt and wrestled with fear and wrestled with, with what, what happened. Is it really true and is it really for me? And so there were critics right off the bat who, who wrestled with doubt that Jesus had in fact resurrected from the dead. They agreed the tomb was empty, but the why of why the tomb was empty is what they struggle with. And there are still people today that, that, that question that resurrection story. So what do critics say about the empty tomb? What do people who wrestle with the empty tomb say even now? They say two things. One, that it's just a centuries-old legend, that it never really happened, and that it's a story that's propagated by, by, by the church. I will tell you this. When a story lasts 2,000 years and has multiple millions, and, and I will even say this. I'm going to say like President Trump. Billions. Yeah. Billions of followers. And we're not talking. You don't have to like him. But... <laughs> Billions of followers. We're not talking about millions of people who walk with Jesus. We're talking about billions, like two billion, two billion believers worldwide. It's lasted over 2,000 years. There's got to be some historical accuracy to this book. But some people believe it's just a legend. Number two, there's some, there's some that still propagate that, yes, the tomb was empty, but the body of Jesus was taken somewhere else. Grave robbers, grave robbers is what ended up happening. But one of the most compelling evidences, and I'm an evidence sort of guy. I don't know about you, but I love to learn. I love to think. I love to, I love to look at why this stuff can be real and, 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 and not just from the perspective of I have faith because at the end of the day, I have to have faith. But I like to look at the archaeology. I like to look at the facts that back this up. But some of the facts that back up the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that who shows up first to the tomb, to the empty tomb of Jesus? Reverend L, who shows up first to the empty tomb of Jesus? Women. Women show up to the empty tomb of Jesus. Not men. Men like to be big in the story, but the men in this story were cowards at this point in time. Women show up to the tomb first. Now, I want to tell you this. This is significant. The fact that women are the ones that record that the tomb of Jesus is empty, and they're the ones that, that let people know that the tomb is empty, and then they run in and they tell people that the tomb is empty, and then the Bible records that women were the ones that showed up first. You have to understand that is a strong evidence that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Why? Because in those days, according to Jewish culture, women could not testify to what was true or false. And so the fact that women are the ones that show up to the tomb is a really big part of the story because the only way that they would have recorded it is it had to have been true. It had to have been true or it wouldn't have made it throughout history. It would not have been written down because women in that culture were viewed a little bit as less than. I'm sorry, ladies, it's not me. I'm not saying it's just the book, okay? <laughs> women were viewed as less than. So the resurrection accounts had been manufactured as critics claim. Women would never have been included as being the first witnesses. It never would have happened. Common sense tells us that the best reason the women were reporting as holding that honor is because it was the truth of what happened. And these women were brave. These were incredibly brave women. These were women who were going to the tomb of Jesus to, to anoint his body, and they were still willing to be seen with Jesus. They were still willing to be associated with Jesus when all the men in his life at that point in time were not willing to be associated 
with Jesus. In fact, in order to get out in front of the empty tomb theory or the resurrection theory, the Jewish leaders of that day tried to say, you know what, we're going to start a rumor. We're going to start a rumor that people broke in and stole his body. We're going to start a rumor that there were grave robbers and that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, that his disciples came in the middle of the night and they stole him. Okay. So here's the problem with that theory. And some people even still have that theory today. The problem with that theory is there was a massive stone put over the mouth of the cave and it had a Roman seal placed on it. And all the male followers of Jesus were absolutely scared to death to be seen or heard with Jesus. In fact, we know Peter, Peter was so scared to be associated with Jesus that he denied Jesus three times. And the last time he denies Jesus as being a follower of Jesus, it was a little girl that said, hey, you're one of them. He said, no, you don't know what you're talking about. He was scared of a little girl. He was so filled with fear that he scattered and all the male disciples of Jesus scattered. But this stone was rolled away by a handful, a few women that had a Roman seal on it that weighed thousands and thousands of pounds and the body was stolen. You see, there's a big problem with that theory because it would have taken not only the male followers of Jesus, it would have taken a small miracle for the Roman guard not to notice that some men were rolling the stone away. And so this morning, I want to touch base on, on, on what are some things that happened in the resurrection story that are very, very difficult to explain if they're fake. The Roman guards that they put in place, you have to understand Rome at that point in time was the elite military force. It was the elite country. It was the elite. It was the elite of the elite in the entire world. And these guards knew that if Jesus' body were stolen, that they would suffer the punishment of possibly death because of what this revolution was that was starting. And so these four to ten men were put at the mouth of this tomb to guard this tomb. And if Jesus' body went missing under their watch, these soldiers knew that they would have the ultimate price to pay. Don't you think if you knew that you were going to give up your life if the body of this man came up missing, that you would diligently watch guard over that tomb? No men, no women, no person would have stolen that body with that Roman guard. But the Bible says that when the tomb of Jesus was opened, that the soldiers fainted from fear as the terror of God, as the angel of God came over top of them. It says they, they literally fell down as though they were, were dead and the stone was rolled away and the Roman guard was, was moved. But the important facts to the empty tomb is this. The Roman seal was broken. Number one, the Roman seal was broken. Everybody say the Roman seal. The Roman seal was broken. So anybody that would have went to anybody that would have went to the tomb in order to take the body of Jesus, they would have known that had they broken that seal, the full authority of Rome would have come against them. And in order to break that 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 seal on that tomb, they would have known the full weight of Rome would have come against them. And so they knew that that seal was the authority of Rome. In fact, Matthew 27 and 66 tells us about that Roman seal. That stone wasn't just rolled in place. That stone was sealed. 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 It was fastened. That makes the stone rolling away that much more difficult. The stone was sealed to the tomb, and they knew that if the Roman seal was broken, the full weight of the Roman Empire would come against him. Would Jesus' disciples have dared to do so? Again, I don't believe so. They were so confused and were so afraid 
that most of them were still in hiding even at this point. It wasn't the fact that Jesus had already died that gave them their courage back. They didn't receive their courage back until Christ showed up to them and was raised from the dead, and they realized that he was who he said he was. The Roman seal was broken. Number two, the stone was rolled away. Now, you have to understand the stone being rolled away was a significant, significant problem because this stone was massive. How many people by a show of hands in here have ever tried to pick up a giant rock by yourself? Not everybody. <laughs> One more time. Can I see your hands if you've ever tried to pick up a giant rock by yourself? How many people have unsuccessfully tried to pick up a giant rock by yourself? How big was the rock by a show of hands? Was it this big? Huh? Men? This? Brian, that rock. Brian said like this. I mean, I think you're a strong, big guy, but a rock. Brian said, I could roll the stone away. If you've, ever, <laughs> if, you, if you've ever tried to pick up a large stone by yourself, you know that it doesn't have to be a very big stone before it becomes a very heavy stone. It doesn't have to be a very big stone before it comes a, a, a very heavy stone. I love looking back into the original language when you, when you read your Bible because oftentimes we don't, get the full meaning of, we don't get the full meaning of what's really happening in Scripture. And the Bible says in Mark and in John and, and in Luke that the stone was, was rolled away, and that's all we read. That's all we read. But in the Gospel of Mark, Mark adds the, pre, uh, the, the preposition Anna. Everybody say Anna. Anna, Anna means up or upward. He adds Anna to the word roll to explain that the position of the stone was in a downhill slope. So literally what they would have done is this stone would have been on one side of the tomb. There would have been a downhill grade to the mouth of the tomb. They would have had like what we would consider to be a wheel chalk in front of that, in front of that stone. And they would have used something like a spud bar like we would have now for, for maybe leverage. And they would have used it to, to roll that stone down into the slot in order to seal that tomb. So when this stone actually actually is rolled away, the, the, the gospel of Mark records the word ana, anaculio, which means to roll up in incline, uphill. In the gospel of Luke, it uses the same root word of culio, but adds a different preposition, apo. Apo means uh, a separation from or a distance from. The stone is rolled a separate distance away from this mouth of this tomb. So the miracle gets bigger that this stone is somehow rolled away by grave robbers who happen to be women. This huge stone that's sealed by the Romans and, and is massive enough that nobody could move it by themselves, not with one man, two men, 10 men, 15 men, is supposed to be moved by just a handful of women who've come to anoint the body of Jesus. It's an absolute miracle. Amen? Amen. The third thing that's significant, and I'm going to get back to this part of it in just a second, is that the grave clothes of Jesus remained, according to John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. When you would die, they would wrap your body in grave linens, and then they would put aromatic spices and things on your body to help keep the stench down because we didn't have the modern process of embalming back then. The problem is they said the, the body of Jesus was stolen. They would have anointed Jesus with a substance called myrrh. How many people remember the We Three Kings of Orient traveling? You like what, what, what gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Okay, okay. So myrrh is a is a is a spice back in the back in the times of the Bible where they would have anointed the body of Jesus with this gummy like substance. They would have put it all over his body and then they would have wrapped his body in these grave clothes. 
The problem with this is, is when Jesus' tomb was left empty, the grave clothes were left inside of the tomb. They would have never, ever been able to get the clothing off of Jesus because it would have been stuck to him. And no grave robber would have taken the time to try to pick that cloth off of Jesus to leave it inside of the tomb. If they were trying to get Jesus out of the tomb to make it look like he had been raised from the dead, they would have simply grabbed his body, grave clothes, and myrrh and tote, and they would have carried him out of the tomb. No grave clothes necessary. They would have carried the whole body out. The problem was the grave clothes were left. And not only the grave clothes, but the cloth the Bible says in John, and Reverend L, I don't think this looks like the cloth that covered the face of Jesus. I, don't, I asked Reverend L for his handkerchief today because I know he always carries one. He's, he's helped me out many times through the years. But the cloth that covered the face of Jesus would have been left as well. The significant part of this is in the tomb of Jesus, the cloth was folded. And it was placed separately from the grave clothes. Every Jewish person that would have walked into that tomb would have known what Jesus was getting at. The grave clothes are over here. The napkin that covers his face is over here. In Jewish culture, when you ate, you would wipe your mouth. If you were finished with your meal, you would place that on the plate crumpled like that. And that would basically tell the people in the house that you were finished eating. The napkin that covered the face of Jesus or the handkerchief or the cloth that covered the face of, the G of Jesus was folded. In Jewish culture, if you were continuing to eat and you had to get up from the table, but you wanted people to know, don't mess with my food. See, my napkin always stays folded. Don't mess with my food. I'm coming back. In Jewish culture, they would have laid this beside of their plate. And that symbolizes this to every good Jewish person I'm coming back. Jesus was making a point. My grave clothes are over here, but this napkin that covers my face is over here because I want you to know not only have I come back, but I'm coming back as well. Come on, if that don't make somebody excited, I don't know what else is going to... I can't get no better than that. That's a significant reminder to everybody that walked in the tomb. He's sending a message. He's sending a message of what's going on. He's sending a message to us that he's not just risen from the dead. He's sending a message that he's coming back. The grave clothes should have never been there if the body of Jesus was stolen. Number four, the guards were paid to keep silent. We call this in the modern era hush money. Hush money was paid according to Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. The Jewish leaders immediately knew they had a problem. The body of Jesus is missing. Come again. Say what? Uh, uh, the body of Jesus is missing. The stone has been moved. The seal has been broken. The grave clothes have been left, and his body's not there. Oh, we got to get ahead of this. This is a real problem. Because this man already had a following. This man said he was going to die on a cross, but this man also said he was going to come back, and now his body's missing? And what they do is they essentially take a large sum of money and they pay the guards. What we need you to do now, because you lost his body, now we need you to shut up. We just need you to zip it. We just need you to keep quiet. We need you to tell not, not a soul what you saw. We need you to make it, sound as though, make it sound as though this grave has been robbed and that you didn't see what you saw. And sometimes I think we struggle with that same thing. We see something. Uh -huh. Come on. We have something significant happen in our life. 
and we struggle with, did we see what we just saw? Did we experience what we just experienced? And I will tell you this so many times in my life, man, God has moved me and God has told me to do things and God has directed me. And the first thing that happens to me when I walk out that back door is, did he really say that to you? Did you really experience that? Did you really see that? And right here, we see it as early as the resurrection of Christ. People are being told, don't say anything about what you saw. Don't say that you witnessed anything. Don't say that you experienced anything. Don't say that this transformation of this, this man who said he would raise from the dead, don't say anything that this actually happened. And we still fight that even now. I want to challenge you this morning with this truth. It really did happen. It really did happen. And why do I believe number five, the, the fifth reason I believe that happened is the most significant reason I believe that it happened is that Christ in all of the gospels was seen by all. Everybody say all. all. He was seen by all of his apostles, all of them. He made sure to meet them right where they were at. I love the story when he, he runs into Thomas. And we know Thomas to be the doubter. We know Thomas to be the skeptic. We know, the, we know Thomas to be the one that struggles with faith. Thomas is a fact sort of guy. He's, he's, he's I need a little bit more sort of guy. And he says to Thomas, he says, look at, the, look at the wounds in my hand. Look at the, look at the hole in my side. In fact, Thomas, you can, you, can put, you can put your hand in there. I would have been like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not going to do that. I see it. I'm good. He meets Thomas right where he's at. I, I think it's significant that Jesus would come back from the dead but leave his wounds in place. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why would you come back from the dead? Why would you raise from the dead? Why would you walk out of a tomb but leave holes in your hand, leave holes in your feet, leave a spear tip hole in your side? Why would you do that? He did that because he wanted people to see it is me. It's me. I'm the one that was hung on that cross. I'm the one that was crucified. I'm the one that paid for your sins. And I can prove it again yeah. over and over and over. He wants to prove to us he is who he says he is. We are who he says we are. We have what he says we have. But so many times, even when we see physical evidence, even when we can put our hand in the side of Jesus, we struggle with doubt. If not to... If not to just really put the hinge pin in it, though, that Christ is seen by many in, in, in all the Gospels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this, that Christ was seen by all of his disciples and he showed himself to another 500 people. 500. I come from the village of Lexington. We have 4,000 people. That means in one fell swoop that Jesus shows himself to one-eighth of our entire community. One-eighth. 500 people gathered in one place. Here I am, it's me, and, and, and I want you to know that I'm alive. Now, I don't know about you, when something goes to trial and they want to find witnesses, they don't need 500. That's right. They really don't. How many people have seen somebody go to prison on the testimony of one or two witnesses? Yeah. 500. 500 people see Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Paul says something in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we really easily overread. He mentions to them, hey, by the way, Jesus shows himself to 
over 500 people. And he says, and most of them are still alive today. Because you got to remember, Paul is one of Jesus's contemporaries. He was alive in the lifetime of Jesus. And he says, and most of them are alive today. When Paul writes this to the Corinthian church, he is basically telling them, there are over 500 people who saw Jesus die and resurrect from the dead. And he is writing this letter to encourage the church at Corinth. And he says this, hey, if you're doubting that Jesus raised from the dead, 500 people people saw him after he was raised from the dead. They're still alive, which is his way of saying, go talk to them. You can go talk to them. You can go ask them what they saw. You can hear about their testimony. You can hear about their witnessing. You can really, really kind of sink your teeth into the truth that Jesus is alive. Five huge reasons why the resurrection of Christ absolutely, absolutely, absolutely had to have happened. Josh, I'm going to ask you to come, brother. But here's the question that we have to really deal with, is what does the resurrection and the empty tomb signify for the believer? See, it's good to, it's good to have things that affirm our faith. It's good to have things that, that absolutely build us up. It's good to have things that make us cement our faith in God. But we have to know why we believe, and we have to know what it does for us. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, out of the Message Bible. And this is Paul talking to the church at Corinth about the resurrection of Christ. He says, the truth is, is that Christ has been raised up. The first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. He says, there's a nice symmetry in this, that death initially came by a man and resurrection from death came by a man. Everybody dies in Adam. Everybody comes alive in Christ. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first, then those with him at his coming. The grand consummation when after crushing the opposition, he hands over his kingdom to God, the Father. He won't let up until the last enemy is down and the very last enemy is death. And as the psalmist said, he laid them low, one and all. He walked all over them. When scripture says that he walked all over them, it's obvious that he couldn't at the same time be walked on. When everything and everyone is finally under God's rule, the son will step down, taking his place with everyone else, showing that God's rule is absolutely comprehensive, a perfect ending. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the verses prior to that, you have to understand that if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Listen to this part. This is the good stuff, but this is what's the truth if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still, listen to this, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have the hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. Most among all men. Everything that this church is, everything that we preach, everything that 
we teach, everything that we teach our children, everything that we hope at the end of this life, every funeral that I preach and tell people that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, that heaven is our home, that we are sojourners just passing through this life. Every bit of that truth hinges on this one main truth. That Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus had to go to a cross. He had to die for you. And the reason he had to die for you is failure and unholiness is not acceptable in the presence of a holy God. But realistically, God is willing to do something so significant that your unrighteousness, your sin, everything you've ever done wrong, all the regret you have in your life, it's able to be washed away because Jesus paid a debt he did not owe in order to pay off a debt you could not pay. But all of it hinges on this huge fact that he was the son of the living God, which meant that he was 100% God and 100% man. And that on that third and appointed day, he walks out of that tomb alive risen from the dead, conquering hell, conquering death, and conquering the grave, so that when you do leave this life, when you do leave this life, when it's all over, when the curtains are finally going down, when the lights shut off on this life, you are able to have confidence that the next life is better than this one, that you'll be in the presence of God, no longer walking by faith, but walking by sight, no longer thinking about Him and dreaming about Him and hoping for Him, but seeing Him face to face. None of us in here, none of us in here want to go anywhere but heaven after this life is over. And this is the work that establishes that possibility. This is the work that establishes that place for us. Not only does he want to make our life better here, but he wants to prepare a place for us that when we leave this place, we get to go to a better place. But I cannot stress this enough. I'm not here and I didn't start this church and we didn't start this church for pageantry, for pomp and for circumstance. You will find out from me that I am, if anything, I have a lot of flaws, but I will tell you the truth from this word to the very best of my ability as long as he gives me the ability to do so. I will try to be led by the spirit as much as possible and I will try to keep my flesh out of it as much as possible. But I cannot stress to you enough that simply the fact that Jesus died and rose that simply those two facts are enough that every single person will make it to eternity with God because Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life and no man comes unto the Father except through me there are many many people that will tell you as soon as somebody dies that they're in a better place and scripturally scripturally the book that Jesus commissioned the, the book that the Holy Spirit wrote through through men Jesus over and over and over made very clear there are two places and this is not a scare tactic this is just the truth this is just the truth of this book there are two places that we're going to end up in one of those two places that one of them was not created for us it was not made for you it was not designed for you it's fixtures and it's ornaments were not for you but it is possible to reject God until the very end. And the person that rejects God till the end will be rejected by him in the end. That's the truth. And I'm sorry that culture and society tells you a different truth than that, but that's the biblical truth. 
You have to have him in your heart, walking with him, in relationship with him at the end of your life so that when you, when you leave this life, you're able to stand in his presence and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the kingdom that your sin is washed away and it's made white as snow. And there's no good works. There's no amount of you living a perfect life that will ever get you there. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. I do. You do. We mess up. Even when we start a relationship with Jesus, it's not a one-time thing. We've been sold that too. Come to church, pray a prayer, never come back. That's not the truth either. The reality is this. It's an ongoing relationship. It's a daily grind with him. It is praying continually. It is confessing sins continually. It is about walking with him in lockstep and saying, I don't want you to just be my savior. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That lordship idea means that he is our leader. He is the one that guides us. He is the one that walks with us. He is the one that clears the path for us. And we're supposed to walk with him throughout this life. That's the idea of his lordship. We bow to his lordship and his sovereignty in our life and we walk with him, which means that he's not interested in having a one-time experience with you. That's important. He's interested. He's interested in walking with you. And Jesus said he'll stay closer than a brother. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He won't give up on you because you mess up. He'll continue in your life. He'll walk with you through every hardship, through every peak, through every valley. And he'll give you the wisdom. He'll give you the wisdom in this life to get to the next. Friends, today I think the most fitting thing that we can do is to get ready and just take communion together today. To honor and to do in remembrance of Jesus what we were told to do in remembrance of him. So I'm going to have you do this before we do that, before we release today. I'm going to have you bow your head and close your eyes all around the room today. Taking communion is one of the most powerful things that we can do. We believe in an open communion here. And what I mean by that is you don't have to be a member of Fusion to take communion at Fusion. However, biblically, and I can read it to you, you do have to have a relationship with Jesus. Why? Because Paul would also tell the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If anyone eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and he drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we were judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. What Paul was telling the church is, listen, you have to have a relationship with Jesus in order for this to have significance. And we never, ever want to take this lightly. We never do. And so this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed and in the somberness of a moment, I want to ask you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's not about, it's not about lights and pomp and circumstance. Today is, is, 
is not about chocolate and bunnies and baskets. Today is about Jesus walking out of a tomb and the reason he walked out of the tomb was you. The reason that he gave us all was you. And he wants nothing more than to have an incredible, incredible relationship with you. And today, if you need to examine your heart and you need to say, Pastor Aaron, we need to pray today. I realize, man, that I've walked away or I realize that I've never had a relationship with Jesus, but I want to today. I want to walk closely with him. I want him in my heart. I want him in my life. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how far you feel like you are from God. It doesn't matter how much doubt you've had. It doesn't matter how bad somebody has told you you are. In an instant, the God of the universe will turn his ear toward you and he will hear this prayer. I promise you that. If you would be honest enough around this room today to say, Pastor Aaron, I need to pray. I need to pray. I need to pray. I'm going to count to three. You're going to raise your hand. It's between you and the Lord today. And I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray with you that God just moves into your heart and you begin to walk with him. This describes you. One, two, three. If that's you, if that's you, amen. Amen. Would there be anybody else to say, you know what? I've had a relationship with the Lord, but I've let it slide a little bit. And I, I want to I tighten that relationship back up. I want to walk closely with him. If that describes you, put your hand up and say, that's me. Amen. 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 We love you. We love you. God loves you. Friends, let's pray this prayer together today. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Today, Jesus... I give you my whole heart. My whole heart. I'm 100% in. Because you were 100% in. Today, Jesus, I give you all of me so I can have all of you. Thank you for what you did at the cross for me. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior and to forgive me today. Jesus' name. Amen. I want to have you take the bread in your hand today. Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. I'm going to promise you we'll have better communion bread than this in the future because this tastes like styrofoam, okay? <laughs> the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread <laughs> And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this bread that represents the broken body of Jesus. Your word says in Isaiah 53 that you are wounded for our transgressions. You are bruised and pierced and crushed for us. And Lord, we don't ever want to lose sight of the punishment that you took for us. Lord, on the night the disciples took this, they had no idea. <laughs> They had no idea the significance of what was about to happen. But here we are 2,000 years later, and we know what happened to you. We don't ever, ever want this to become something that we take lightly. And so today, Jesus, thank you for allowing yourself to go through that for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together. I want you to take the cup. get back to normal communion I promise you 
Paul would say this. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for this cup. This cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. And your word says, without the shedding of blood, there would be no remission for my sins. Lord, we know that it is your blood that washes us whiter than snow. It's the blood that covers our sins. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that you made for us. Lord, you, you paid a debt you did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. And Lord, we recognize that it came at the greatest cost. And Lord, we don't want to take it lightly today. Father, as many times as we've taken this, I pray that it would mean more today than it's ever meant in our life. Jesus, we celebrate you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We pray that you would bless this in Jesus' name. Amen.